listening to the podcast that we call Faith and Works. Faith and Works is produced and sponsored by the Interfaith Leadership Council of Metropolitan Detroit. I'm Bob Brutel, and I am the vice chair of the Interfaith Leadership Council. Uh, we are, uh, I'm pleased that we have uh, Robert Jones, Reverend Robert Jones with us, the longtime producer host of Blues from the Lowlands uh, and uh, a, an a expert on the music of uh, the black church, certainly, and uh, much beyond that. Uh, and we have been uh, doing this podcast on work specifically of musicians. Uh, this is the third part uh, of those uh, podcasts. And uh, we, uh, we ended the last podcast talking about the importance of this music, that is this music that comes out of the black experience, the African experience, and gets mixed into the, all of the ethnic musics of, uh, that, uh, America represents. And, uh, we wanted to talk a little about its, uh, value and its importance with the protest movements of, uh, well, we would all say the 1960s, but actually those protest movements started well before that. Uh, certainly in, uh, in the thirties and forties, uh, I, I, if you don't know a Philip Randolph, please, uh, uh, look him up and see how early these protest movements began. Uh, but Robert Jones is with us to talk about uh, the protest music and how important it was. So Robert, why don't you start us off on that discussion? Well, before we sort of delve into the idea of, of the protest music, of course, most folks are familiar with songs like um, um, We Shall Overcome or uh, Keep On Pushing, you know, probably uh, sort of the modern equivalent to uh, an inspirational song. I, I sort of wanted to go back to uh, a music that is pretty pure in terms of it being an African-American worship experience. And that's something called the old Dr. Watts. Um, think about Dr. Isaac Watts, who is, um, publishes these hymns. And, uh, during the great enlightenment in, in, in the 18, late, you know, 1700s, early 1800s, you've got these preachers who are touring in the deep South. And, uh, some of them are Northerners who, are about the idea of liberation through religion. Some of them are Southerners who are about the idea of keeping the status quo, but everybody is trying to preach to these enslaved folks uh, because, you know, the slave trade now makes those enslaved people valuable in a sense that they weren't before. Before you could literally work a slave to death and just get another one. But then when the slave trade is cut off um, from most of the world, then you end up with the fact that if you have an enslaved person, you better try to um, give them delayed gratification of heaven as opposed to, you know, you better try to keep them alive. You you breed them so that you have more slaves and rather than importing slaves, right? So in that tradition, in that preaching tradition, you have this book of hymns 
um, by Dr. Isaac Watts. And it doesn't have any music notation with it. So what happens is these early African-American preachers and worshipers take the music of the minor pentatonic scale that they brought over from West Africa, and they turn Dr. Watts's hymns into what they need Dr. Watts's hymns to be, right? So you might have a song like, I love the Lord, he heard my cry and pitied every groan. Long as I live while trouble rise, I'll hasten to his throne, right? You take something like that and you turn it into something like this. Kind of is the music that I grew up with and what was called the devotion service. Your old deacon would, would do the call and the grandmothers and the grandfathers. And if you could do the song, you do the response. But what you hear in that is a technology that changes your spirit, changes your uh, energy, right? So when you, when you listen to the Dr. Watch, you realize that that kind of singing gave energy and impetus, I think, to the music that would eventually become the kind of music used in the civil rights movement. It was spontaneous. You could create an image um, on the spot. You could create a verse on the spot. Uh, I love the Lord. He heard my cry. He pitied every groan. That That kind of energy coming out of the black church is what eventually would produce some of the music that folks marched to, went to jail, sang in jails in, 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 in Birmingham, Montgomery, places like that. And that was some of the stuff that underpinned the civil rights movement. But at the same time, we were talking earlier about this idea of white music and black music and they, the two styles existing side by side. But then when they try to cross, when you try to break down some of these barriers that separate this music, then you discover that those barriers don't fall easily. Um, and we think about artists like Nina Simone or Billie Holiday. Uh, or Hazel Scott, who were really accomplished classical artists, uh, Marian Anderson, um, Paul Robeson, really accomplished artists, but their training 
didn't really make that much of a difference when it came to encountering some of the institutional barriers of racism that said, you know, the Daughters of the American Revolution said to Marian Anderson, you know, you're not welcome. And so they had to find alternate ways of making a living in spite of the fact that they were great and accomplished musicians. And, um, and so we, we discover that, you know, they didn't just go away. What they did is they created the sophisticated music, um, sort of to get around the idea of the, the places they weren't welcome. They just created new places. You know, so that that's uh, again a part of the I think the dynamic of something that we can learn from listening to this music and of course relating it to the history of folks in the black church and and for that matter in the white church. So I said in an earlier podcast, uh, quoting from uh, Witten Marcellus, that tribal tradition calls out for sameness. Uh, it calls out for the, the recognition of separation by virtue of sameness. And it seems to me that when uh, the wider society recognizes clearly that this, this version of the music, this, this rendition is intended to correct that. It's, it's intended to break down those barriers that when that's, when that's noticed, mm-hmm. uh, it, it can become volatile. Yes. Absolutely. It's a, you know, even in country music, and we, we've referred several times to, uh, Ken Burns documentary on, on country music, that there is a tendency, the tradition sort of demands that country music, country artists look a certain way. Uh, I don't know if it's like the cowboy hat and the straight nose or the cleft chin or whatever it is, but country is, tends to be one of the more unforgiving, uh, genre as far as opening it up. I mean, not only do you, you, you have Charlie Pride and then you'll have Darius Rucker. But then Lil Nas X, I think, you know, with his affiliation with uh, Billy Ray Cyrus, that was one that just too many factors. It's like he's young, he's black, he's gay, and he's a rapper. We can't, no, we can't accommodate all of that. But the artists uh, who collaborated, who collaborate with these, you know, with, with, uh, you're an artist, you don't care. So, you know, you, you're willing to break down barriers and in a sense the audience is willing to buy what sounds good but there is that middle that middle tier that uh maybe it's the recording company maybe it's the maybe it's the the institution that supports the music that's a really hard uh nut to crack and so you you have when we talk about institutional racism I think it's still there. And I think we alluded to earlier that if you look in in the religious music bin, you'll see that it is probably as segregated as any style of music you can imagine. 
there you know there's country music there's bluegrass gospel there's country gospel there's old school white gospel there's contemporary gospel there's southern gospel there's traditional go- every contemporary gospel everyone is a euphemism for race and age and probably even economic uh status uh, and uh and you you don't see a lot of crossover um so that's still uh an interesting uh, an interesting way that we categorize our music and our worship music so you said something earlier robert that uh i wanted to uh, ask you a little bit more about um i've heard um music uh folk music country music uh bifurcated as uh Saturday night and Sunday morning, and the idea of Saturday night being the uh, uh, the the more um, more sexually uh, uh, intended. Uh, it's intended for forming relationships and mm-hmm. expressing those relationships to uh, couples. And then there's the Sunday morning where the music is intended to express a relationship with God. But you seem to indicate that there's a, another uh, place, and that is the idea of the groan, uh, the idea of the, of the expression of just simple expression of humanity. And in, in the case of protest music that we're talking about right now, the idea of music expressing a groan, expressing the sense of being oppressed, mm-hmm. uh, the the sense of sorrow, uh, seems to me to be uh, a third category. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but uh, what w- what would be your response to that? Um, I, I had the privilege uh, quite a few years ago, back in the late '80s, to meet Willie Dixon, who was one of the greatest songwriters and producers, uh, especially in the blues genre that America ever produced. And he, he had a simple way of categorizing music. He said, when you sing a song to God in heaven, you sing a spiritual. When you sing to earth and man, you sing the blues. And his, his idea was that, um, really it's the same, it's coming out of the same person and it's coming out of the same experience. But there is certain music that would be appropriate to the church and certain music that would be appropriate to the bar. But then what you're saying is, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm reading it right. There is a certain music that is probably neither one. It's probably more appropriate to the politics of your time or whatever it is that you're going through. I think about a song that is not a, a gospel song, but you could sing it in church and you could sing it in that bar. You could sing it anywhere. Sam Cooke's Change Gonna Come. Uh, which came out of the fact that he was, uh, in 1964, he's turned down for a hotel room, I believe in Louisiana, and he writes that song, uh, A Change Is Gonna Come, that ends up being played at President Obama's inauguration. Um, you think about Keep On Pushing, or songs like... Um, uh, uh, people get ready. There's a change, a uh, train are coming. Those songs were not gospel songs per se, but certainly they were spiritual and had uh, took advantage of chord changes that made them sound sacred 
and images that were about universality of of expression. I think those songs are still being made, uh, not as much as as uh, maybe in the '60s or uh, in some of those volatile periods in the '30s. Uh, it seems like that there is this uh, sort of rising up of music as we need it, and then it dies down, and then it rises up again, and then it dies down. So um, I'm thinking that that we're probably due for some some more of those kind of songs that appeal to just the idea of our humanity and how feeling lonely or alone or abandoned can inform your music. Yeah, take uh, Strange Fruit. Yeah. Uh, what, I mean, you can't put it in either the church or the bar category, the saloon. It uh, It's a... It's a song that protests. It comes from the gut. It provides images that are uh, that are off-putting and horrific, and at the same time compelling uh, and protesting. Yeah, uh, you know that's a song written by um, my understanding by Abel Maripol, who who was a Jewish teacher, uh, but that that really talked about the reality and the brutality of lynching. When people did not want to uh, acknowledge that that was a part of the experience of life in the United States, probably a combination of that song and uh, Emmett Till, those images were just something that America could not deny uh, and ultimately had to wrestle with. And fortunately, over, you know, for the most part, I would say America overcame that aspect of its ugly side, although there are other ugly sides to be overcome and grapple with. But it just sort of shows the power of, the, of music that hits you in the gut and, you know, in a way that maybe you could ignore a news story, you could ignore a, a newspaper article, you could ignore a lot of things. But when you heard a song like Strange Fruit, it just hit you in between the eyes and there was no denying it. So could you imagine a um, – I know we can't imagine because historically it was such a part of it. But uh, what what would have been uh, the protest movement, the civil rights movement of the 20th century without its music? Uh, you know, I don't think – well, I can't say it would not have existed. But I certainly know that it was a great tool – um, for those people who marched when you heard we shall overcome, when you heard, um, you know, keep your eyes on the prize, when you heard those kind of songs, um, then it, I think it galvanized a generation of people who were attracted to the, to the whole and to the power of the music. I've been privileged to work with and to know, um, Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. And Peter talks about, you know, uh, the idea of, of he, John Paul Stuckey, and, and, uh, uh, so Noel Paul Stuckey, and, uh, and Mary Travers. And they are going, you know, in the presence of Dr. King and, and, uh, uh, Harry Belafonte and Mahalia Jackson. Those folks really helped to change, I think, the personality and the persona of America. Uh, 
and uh, music played a large part in that. Yeah, and, and uh, you can see or you can hear the rhythms of the music in the music itself, but you can also hear the rhythms in the preaching. Yes, yes, so they're, absolutely. They're, they're, they're both there, and they're both powerful, and as, as you've suggested, uh, uh, they come from the gut. Yeah, so, preaching, black preaching uh, has a musicality to it that um, is probably due to the fact that, you know, you didn't have a heck of a lot of other things. <laughs> you didn't have money. You didn't have regalia. You didn't have, uh, you know, you didn't have a lot of political support. So you had the power of the word combined with the power of the music. And it sounds in both cases that bring out the emotions um, and I would hope uh, – Break down the uh, the sameness uh, the, that uh, the tribalism that we were talking about earlier. So uh, before we uh, go out of this uh, podcast with a, a little more uh, music, I want to ask uh, any of our listeners to uh, please contact the Interfaith Leadership Council of Metropolitan Detroit and make suggestions for. Uh, what further podcasts you'd like to hear, and especially on this theme of music. And we will uh, provide more diversity. Uh, you've uh, heard two, uh, two men speaking about this, uh, and uh, we need to bring in the powerful female voices and so on. And so we'd like to hear your suggestions. So this has been Faith and Works, uh, produced and uh, sponsored by the Interfaith Leadership Council of Metropolitan Detroit. Please contact us. We are looking forward to hearing from you. Listening to the Faith and Works Podcast, sponsored by the Interfaith Leadership Council of Metropolitan Detroit. You can contact us, give us suggestions for future programs, or comment by email at faithandworkspodcast at gmail.com. The music you are hearing is Retro Soul by bensound.com. Thanks for listening.